The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. We're going to be continuing our journey through the history of literature today by jumping from India back over to Rome. There's a republic going on in Rome. It's about to fall. That's going to be our topic today. We're going to talk about poetry and empire. Now, I've always been fascinated by Rome, by the Roman Republic, by the Roman Empire. Why? I think it's because I grew up in the Cold War. There were two superpowers, clash of giant civilizations. I was just a, a nobody, a pawn, just a, a speck on the population map. But I was part of America. I was part of this, this giant civilization. Everything political was viewed through that prism. USSR versus the USA affected all of us. The threat of nuclear war hovering over us. All of our understanding of the world, our relationships to other countries, was all viewed as part of the Cold War. That was the world I grew up in. It's hard to shake things when you come of age during that time. It was all I knew right after the Vietnam War. A lot of people were thinking and rethinking our role in the world. Went from World War II to Vietnam. And then my generation, the one that followed right after, we were trying to figure out from the grown-ups around us how we were supposed to think about America. Was it an empire? And so we... By the time I got to college, we'd read Thucydides and the history of the Peloponnesian War and think about great civilizations like Athens and Sparta. And there'd be all these conferences that would say things like, is the U.S.'s Athens prepared to defeat the USSR's Sparta? Or sometimes they'd Take the contrarian view why the U.S. is more like Sparta. That's what academics do. We'd read Shakespeare and we'd talk about empire there. We'd read all literature in some ways. was viewed in connection with empire. And then there was Rome. Roman Empire loomed large. It still does, actually. Will America fall? America had a kind of swagger back then, for better or worse. When I started traveling, I saw the impact of America firsthand. When I was in Bologna, I would meet World War II veterans who loved us. 
tears would come to their eyes. An American. They'd shake my hand. Tell me the story about when American troops rolled through as they rolled north through Italy, liberating the people. And there was a newer generation, my generation, the people in Bologna, Italians. Same thing. Only for them it was more the love of pop culture, Janis Joplin, Scorsese, De Niro, soap operas, all the American exports. That was part of their world. And I saw the negatives. I saw a more politicized response to Americans abroad, traveling abroad. Much of it deserved. Much of it having nothing to do with the individuals, but just a reaction against America as a concept. Canadians Canadians would travel and they would have maple leaves. They'd have flags, Canadian flags on their backpacks, on their clothes, trying to make sure people didn't confuse them for Americans. There were complaints. CIA involvement, interference, bullying, oil, nuclear weapons, greed, all of that was associated with America. The CIA (laughs) stayed with some Peace Corps volunteers in Morocco, these 22-year-old women living in these remote villages, 80 people in the village, 100 people, Peace Corps volunteer there to help them with maternal and child health, build a latrine, trying to do their best for this village. And the people in the village would say, ah, with the CIA, the CIA, you're with the CIA, we know. Which is interesting to me, having come from a small town, remembering what it was like when the neighboring small town got a McDonald's and they lorded it over us. They had a McDonald's. They also had a stoplight. We did not. Those kinds of things put them on the map. Someone had believed that they had enough traffic to warrant a stoplight. We did have a stoplight. It just blinked red. Which is, that's just a stop sign. <laughs> There's nothing different about a blinking red stoplight. It didn't even have a green or yellow light. It was just a red blinking light. That was our stoplight. Oh, and the people in the town next door, the town one over, Five miles away, they loved to make fun of our stoplight and to talk about eating chicken McNuggets, Big Macs. We had none of that. We had restaurants, diners, a pizza place. That's not the same as a franchise. That's not the same as the McDonald's Corporation deciding that your town has grown to a size where it can support the same restaurant, the same franchise that Michael Jordan endorses. All the commercials on television. And we would drive over there because that's where we wanted to eat and then we would just sit in shame eating our food 
in the rival town. So I was thinking about that when I was thinking about this remote village, 80 people thinking that they had been blessed by a CIA agent. They must have felt a little bit proud. We've got secrets too. We, we, we are four hours away by bus from the nearest city. We live out here in abject poverty, but the CIA has an interest in what we think. They want to know what we're up to out here. Or maybe that's just how pernicious the CIA was viewed in those years. Anyway, whether you love America or hate America, or somewhere in the middle, you love some of it, hate some of it, or you think it can be improved, or you think it can't be improved, in any case, it's something to deal with. It's huge, powerful, its reach is overwhelming, maybe a little less so than it was. Maybe not, maybe more so. The comparisons for America have been with history. Is America like Athens or Sparta? And in what ways? Is it like the British Raj? Is it like Napoleon's France? Are we Rome? How do we differ? How are we alike? Lots of books on this. And we have this tradition of looking at fascism and saying it can't happen here. And then we have another tradition of saying, but what if it did? Or maybe it will. Or get ready. It's coming. Those specific predictions rarely come true. It's hard to make specific predictions about what's going to happen on a geopolitical scale. It's like economics. I bet a man $1,000 once that the U.S. dollar, the currency, would not collapse by 1999. He said, it'll happen by 1999. The coming currency collapse. He handed me a book and said, trust me, 10 years, within 10 years, the dollar is going to collapse. So we bet. Seemed like a, a safe bet for me. Because <laughs> he was a smart guy. He was a very smart guy, but somehow it escaped him that if the currency collapsed and I lost the bet, $1,000 would not be such a big deal to pay. It'd be like paying 10 cents. He should have bet gold. Anyway, I won that bet. Won it by 17 years and counting. He has never paid me. Could we have Mussolini in America? Could we have mob rule? Could we see concentration camps here? There's lots of, of shows and speculation, essays about this. These are interesting thought experiments. I dabble in them sometimes. But who knows how, what's going to happen. History is unpredictable in advance. But here's a prediction that I feel comfortable making. Here's a thing that will happen. America's run, whatever you think of it, whatever it actually is, will end. That always happens. 
time wins in the end. Something new arises to replace. It always works that way. You might even say that America's run as a republic will end. Maybe centuries from now, maybe sooner, maybe a lot sooner. So what fascinates me are the stories about Rome, the fall of the republic. How did Caesar talk them out of that? (laughs) The republic was pretty cool, worked for hundreds of years, did well by its citizens. And then it was just gone. Who objected to it leaving? What did they say? Who agreed? Why? Who was on board? Why? Because that could happen here in some form or another. We take it for granted that things that are in place now could never change, but they will. It's just a matter of time. And if it does, or when it does, will we have chaos or empire? Will we dissolve into factions with leaderlessness? Or will it be unified under a single leader? We have multiple leaders. What will it look like? And what will it be like for the common citizen? Will we have fewer freedoms? Less say in our governance? And if we do undergo that tradition from republic to empire, what would we expect from our entertainment? Our art? Would we see protest? Resignation? Anger? Enthusiasm? Here's an idea. What if we're in this transition now? What if we're slowly moving away from the kind of freedom that we enjoyed, that we reveled in during the Cold War. All the stuff that we thought distinguished us from the Soviet Union, how many of those have been eroded? Remember Yakov Smirnov? He'd get on an ad, for, what was he doing ads for? Miller Lite, maybe? And he'd get on it, he'd, his shtick was to get up there and say, what a country. Remember that guy? When I came to America, I realized what a country. Unopened mail. Yeah. You think your emails are unopened? Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, 
Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Yakov Smirnov. Maybe he was a prophet. The prophet Yakov. I can remember torture. We don't torture. That's barbarous. That's barbarous. Anyway, getting a little off the track now. But what if we are in this transition? And trust me, we're getting to the literature. Because that's the interesting question for me. Who are the noble poets? Who are the artists who see reality the most clearly? The many writers and essayists and opinion makers, talk show, talking heads, the satirists, the Bill Maher, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, I guess the old Stephen Colbert, Samantha B, Trevor Noah. Who is calling attention to the way things are going now? Or is it the people you never hear of? The anonymous documentarians? Is the way we mistreat people, is that what needs to be called attention to? Is that the obligation of the artist? Racism, sexism, xenophobia. Is that our downfall? That our humanity is turning into something colder? And the people who point it out, are those the best writers today? Are those our heroes? Are those the cultural doctors with the right diagnoses? Or is it the writers who talk about the class, the 1%, the ruling class, the poor, those who look at gerrymandered districts and the way the Senate system misrepresents the people, how this is getting distorted and more distorted, and the money that flows through the system, buying votes, buying influence. Are the people who point that out, are those the heroes? If we're at the tail end of something here, who will later be said to have gotten it right? And who will be viewed as the lackeys of the system? The ones who just smiled and grinned, cashed their checks. What if those lackeys are talented? What if they're the best? Has anyone ever topped Lenny Riefenstahl, her artistry, and her propaganda. Are her works going to outlast those of her peers? Probably. How about this? I'll give you a scenario right now. Let's imagine that we're in the last days of the American Republic. Now, you might think this is hypothetical, and it is. I'm not saying I have any particular insight that none of you, the rest of you have, if you're a political observer, if you're any kind of observer, social observer, you probably have your own views. And like I said, it's impossible to predict. 
Here's an article that was in the New York Times a few days ago. It's called The Man the Founders Feared, Peter Winner. Mr. Winner writes, It is stunning to contemplate, particularly for those of us who are lifelong Republicans, but we now live in a time when the organizing principle that runs through the campaign of the Republican Party's likely nominee isn't adherence to a political philosophy. Mr. Trump has no discernible political philosophy, but an encouragement to political violence. Mr. Trump's supporters will dismiss this as hyperbole, but it is the only reasonable conclusion that his vivid, undisguised words allow for. As the examples pile up, we should not become inured to them. I'd like to punch him in the face, Mr. Trump said about a protester in Nevada. In the old days, Mr. Trump fondly recalled, protesters would be, quote, carried out in a stretcher. Of another protester, Mr. Trump said, maybe he should have been roughed up. In St. Louis, Mr. Trump sounded almost wistful. Nobody wants to hurt each other anymore. About protesters in general, he said, there used to be consequences. There are none anymore. These people are so bad for our country. You have no idea, folks. You have no idea. Talk like this eventually finds its way into action. And so on March 10th, a Trump supporter named John McGraw, who was charged with assault, battery, and disorderly conduct after a protester was sucker-punched as he was being hauled away by security guards out of a Trump rally in North Carolina the day before. When interviewed afterward, Mr. McGraw said, the next time we see him, we might have to kill him. And Donald Trump's reaction, he said he was considering paying Mr. McGraw's legal fees. He obviously loves his country, Mr. Trump added, and maybe he doesn't like seeing what's happening to the country. Welcome to Donald Trump's America. That's Peter Wenner. He then goes on to write about the history of the founding fathers, Abraham Lincoln, the fear that people had of the passions of the mob, the role of reason, the reverence for the laws that they advocated. He contrasts that with Trump. The sucker punch. The sucker punch. It's been a long time since that phrase has been cited as often as it has. Sucker punching. There was a rally in the city where I live, the city where I work. I had to walk past it on my way home. There was protesters there. That was the talk of everyone in the office. Might have to find a new way home. I might get sucker punched. You know, there's sucker punchers out there. The article goes on and says, When he was asked by CNN's Jake Tapper about the sucker-punching episode, Mr. Trump responded by saying, quote, People come with tremendous passion and love for this country, and when they see protest, in some cases, you know, you're mentioning one case, which I haven't seen, I heard about it, which I don't like, but when they see what's going on in this country, they have anger that's unbelievable. They have anger. They love this country. It's a beautiful thing. Passion, love for the country is a beautiful thing. Sucker punching. Part of it. That naturally flow from love for the country. Passion. Peter Winter is 
concerned. He concludes his article saying, The founders, knowing history and human nature, took great care to devise a system that would prevent demagogues and those with authoritarian tendencies from rising up in America. That system has been extraordinarily successful. We have never before faced the prospect of a political strongman becoming president until now. Now, like I said, I have no idea whether this is on its way. What it will mean. Here's the scenario I want you to think about. Let's imagine that Mr. Wenner is right. We have a strong man running. Let's say the strong man wins. Let's say it's not Mr. Trump, but the next one. Say it's someone who's watching Trump now and thinking he has his flaws. I could overcome that, but I could use a lot of his tactics. I could follow his example. I could win that way. Here's something I feel fairly confident in predicting. When the Republic does end, whatever replaces it will declare that they're actually just fulfilling the true principles of the Republic. You hear that with Trump? He doesn't say, we're changing things. We're going to be the land of the sucker punch. No. He says, these people love their country. It's passion. They're defending something. That's what's going to happen whenever this republic ends. Whatever replaces it will claim they're just the heirs, the true heirs of what the country was based on. Now, who's going to disagree with me on this? If you're on the left, what you might fear would be a takeover by an authoritarian leader, suppresses the vote, buys elections, seizes more power, runs the military, blocks the courts. That's your nightmare. And in that nightmare, don't you think that the leader or the oligarchy would wrap themselves in the flag and the constitution? Of course they would. And if you're on the right, your nightmare is different. The collapse of the republic is will be due to the people with a socialist or a foreigner or a politically correct leader, someone with an atheist agenda, someone or some group will sink all this country's traditions and values and they'll let Muslims and Mexicans run wild, taking money from hardworking Americans, taking Christmas pageants out of the schools, putting the tentacles of big government around the throat of God-loving, flag-waving real America. That's your nightmare, right? Don't you also think that whoever this person is, whoever this new leader is, that that person will be claiming that they're the true heirs of freedom and democracy, that they're upholding the traditions. That's how it happened in Rome. There were factions, and civil wars, and chaos. There was a vacuum. Chaos created a vacuum. People wanted an answer. They were tired of the civil wars. Caesar stepped in. 
But when he did, he didn't say, Now, I have a solution. I'll promote a better form of governing in which <laughs> you will all just do what I say. No, of course not. He said he was the expression of the people's will. He was the true heir of the Romans who wanted Rome to be great, as great as a republic. That he was actually fostering the republic, that he was saving the republic. Never has a dictator fought so hard against being labeled as a king. Being labeled a king in Rome, a king was like a curse word. Caesar was a god. He was more willing to be called a god, literally a god, than he was to be called a king. Now, Rome's example is frightening because it ended poorly. Rome's, the Roman Empire is gone. We don't like that idea. It ended poorly, and we, or at least I, kind of suspect that the story would end like this in our case, too. If we lose democracy, if we lose our core democratic principles, like fair and honest elections and impartial courts, fundamental rights for all citizens, if we lose that to a dictatorship, or whatever the form of author authoritarian government is, we'd probably go the way of Rome. At first... People resist. Caesar has supporters, but he also has critics. And an assassin. Then, Augustus sweeps in. Some things get done. Trains are running on time, if there had been trains. Brick turns to marble. Citizens adjust to a new reality. Maybe the Republic wasn't the best. Maybe this is better. There's not so much bickering, not so much corruption, not so much lethargy and enervation. Bold, decisive actions, including improvements. Is that so bad? It's a golden age. And then the leaders... <laughs> get worse and worse. Emperors get farther and farther away from the practical problem-solving. An elite class lives in a bubble. And you end up with a president, the Roman emperor, Nero, naming his horse, <laughs> assigned his Gave his horse an important job of consul. Be like the president naming his horse secretary of state. I don't know what the equivalent would be today. His dog, maybe. A robot. <laughs> naming his self-driving car secretary of state. Now, a lot of people think that was an example of Nero being crazy. There's an alternative theory, which is he was doing that just to demonstrate his power. We kind of see that. We've kind of seen that already. What was torture? There's people who argue for torture always invoke the ticking bomb scenario. 
There were people we tortured when we knew they didn't have information. We tortured people just because. Just because why? Out of anger? Or to send a message to make a statement about the way the state was going to treat people. About the way power worked. So, what does any of this have to do with the history of literature? Well, what if I told you that all this were to happen in America in 2,000 years from now? People would be looking back. They would have some art that survived. And here's what they had. An epic poem, maybe a movie, glorifying America's history, and the great new development of empire. It's the first thing. Can you imagine that happening? Yes, I think so. What if there was also a comedic poet who satirized the new system? Maybe in gentle verses that appear to be about something else altogether. And we understand that the poet himself was banned. You could see that happening, right? The poet was banished for his gentle satire. The regime overreacted, perhaps. How about a poet who writes beautifully? And though he's, he's pretty happy with things, he steers clear of politics, but you can read between the lines. See a little criticism here and there. How about a bitter poet who goes on rants against his world? Doesn't talk much about politics except for maybe a few corrupt politicians here and there. And we treasure the poetry because it enables us to see what life is like for a member of his class. Now, Oh, one more. An author who takes everything about the new world, especially the corrupt millionaires who are benefiting from this new change in society. This author takes all this on with scathing satirical work that's thinly disguised, and he escapes trouble. He doesn't get banished. Escapes trouble with the authorities because the authorities by now are so fat and bloated and corrupt that they're powerless to defend themselves. Wouldn't you think that's a pretty likely snapshot? Aren't those the, you would imagine, five movies? Couldn't you imagine those being the themes? If America is lost, the republic is lost, we turn into an empire, and there's a five things that survive from the 40 years where we undergo that transition. Wouldn't you think that those five are pretty likely to be part of what survives. Of course, we could hope for more ethnic and gender diversity. We might have different things, not just poetry, but novels and films and television series, maybe podcasts. But as for understanding this particular era, the era where we move 
from Republic to Empire. Wouldn't this be a good selection? A propagandist. A generally favorable artist. A critic, a satirist, and a curmudgeon. Wouldn't we see those types? If we looked at five bloggers, assuming there's some form of free expression that survives, and the art, once it's there, gets talked about, debated, explored, it's of its time. And people read the propaganda. I'm imagining critics 2,000 years from now looking back at American art during the fall of the Republic. You'd look at the propagandists and say, well, you can find cracks in there. His art was greater than the propaganda because he was talking about human characters, because he was committed to the truth. Like any poet, if poets are committed to the truth, the characters are round and not flat. And we can see in there the downside of empire, the toll that empire took. If they're good, the poets are good, the characters will be multidimensional and you won't be able to merely praise in all forms. You'll be able to find hints. Even in someone who studiously ignores politics, you find politics creeping in. People cannot escape their age. So, the five that I described here, the propagandist, the generally favorable artist, the critic, the satirist, and the curmudgeon, that's who we have. That's who we're looking at today. Virgil, Ovid, Horace, Petronius, and Catullus. Those are the five. Let's take a break. Then I'll make the case for and against each of these five poets start with Virgil, who is the most famous of these poets. Maybe he's the best. He was admired by figures throughout history, admired by Augustus. The longest poem, the Aeneid, it's basically Virgil giving Rome what ancient Greece had, thanks to Homer. It's an epic poem. Dante loved Virgil too. Dante made him the guide to the inferno. He called Virgil il miglior fabbro, the better maker. That was his tribute to him as a poet. T.S. Eliot picked that up. He called Pound il miglior fabbro. And recently, Donna Tart picked it up and called Brett Eaton Ellis her miglior fabbro. Fabros just aren't as miglior as they used to be, I guess. Anyway, Aeneid is the story of Rome's beginning. It's an origin story for Rome. Rome's rise 
the main character, Aeneas, starts in Troy. He's a Trojan prince. When that city's burned, he leaves with his father on his shoulders and his son at his side. The idea there is the generations, the respect for the generations, that something will continue. Something of Troy is going to live on in Rome because Aeneas goes off to found the city of Rome. Aeneas is dutiful, stoic. What a great Roman. This is all propaganda. Aeneas is unhappy. He has a miserable life, really. Pretty unhappy. But he fights for the future, like a good soldier. Dido, his lover, is not unhappy, and this is interesting. Was it a mistake? Was this Virgil, the poet, overtaking Virgil, the propagandist? Kind of like John Milton, letting Satan run away from him. His long Christian poem, Satan becoming the almost like a hero. Or is this only emphasizing the supreme sacrifice that Aeneas made? Aeneas is our model, maybe showing Dido with some some spirit, some life, not so much self-abnegation. Maybe that only emphasizes that Aeneas makes a kind of sacrifice that the rest of us could never make. You can see what the example is for the Roman. Be a good soldier. Hold it in. Fight for the empire. Fight for Rome. What's important? Loyalty to family and loyalty to the state. Frankly, I think we're waiting for a translation of the Aeneid. I find it a difficult read, maybe because it's got this propaganda in it. I'm not as interested in sifting through the propaganda, looking for the cracks in the propaganda. And this is from me, a person who loves Rome and who loves poetry. There's actually a new translation on the way of part of the Aeneid. It's by Seamus Heaney, and I'm excited about that. I'm sure it will be excellent. We got a little taste of it, which I'll read for you now so you can get a flavor of Virgil. It's only going to be the book uh, where Aeneas visits the underworld. It was excerpted in The New Yorker. Seamus Heaney is an excellent Poet, excellent translator. His Beowulf is amazing. Kind of wish he had translated the entire Aeneid, but he translated book six. I think it's book six, might be book 11. The trip to the underworld, here it is. Elsewhere, Anchises, fatherly and intent, was off in a deep green valley, surveying and reviewing souls consigned there. Those due to pass to the light of the upper world, It so happened he was just then taking note of his whole posterity, the destinies and doings, traits and qualities of descendants dear to him. But seeing Aeneas come wading through the grass towards him, he reached his two hands out in eager joy. His eyes filled up with tears and he gave a cry, At last! Are you here at last? I always trusted that your sense of right would prevail and keep you going to the end, and am I now allowed to see your face? My son, and hear you talk, and talk to you myself? 
This is what I imagined and looked forward to as I counted the days, and my trust was not misplaced. To think of the lands and the outlying seas you have crossed, my son, to receive this welcome, and after such dangers. I was afraid that Africa might be your undoing. But Aeneas replied, Often and often, father, you would appear to me. Your sad shade would appear, and that kept me going to this end. My ships are anchored in the Tuscan Sea. Let me take your hand, my father. Oh, let me, and do not hold back from my embrace. And as he spoke, he wept. Three times he tried to reach arms round that neck. Three times the form, reached for in vain, escaped like a breeze between his hands, a dream on wings. That is beautiful. (laughs) Oh, Seamus Heaney, thank you. We need a new translator as good as Seamus Heaney to do the whole thing. Then we can enjoy Virgil. Then we can, those of us who don't know Latin, can see why Dante viewed Virgil as his milior fabro. Next poet I want to look at is Ovid. He was also hugely influential. Shakespeare, Alexander Pope, Dryden, the whole Enlightenment loved Ovid. He's the one I referred to who was banished by Augustus. We don't know the reason for it. Some say it was for morals, that Augustus was trying to tamp down immorality. I'm not so sure. It's not particularly immoral, in my view. Although, even though maybe I should say it's not particularly explicitly immoral, But the thrust of it, the general take of his work, The Art of Love, which was kind of a bestseller in its day, it had a kind of looseness to it. The first book was How to Get a Lover. The second book, after that, after that was so popular, it came out the second one. It's like the sequels. The Hollywood sequel. The second book was How to Keep Your Lover. And the things here are things like Don't Forget Her Birthday, that kind of thing. The third book was addressed to women, The Art of Love, that women should know. Are these immoral? When I read them, they're a little shy, a little coy, a little tame. On the other hand, they portrayed Rome and the upper echelons of Roman society as sort of a hotbed of affairs and seductions. So maybe it was morals that Augustus, that led Augustus to banish him. He certainly would have preferred Virgil's dutiful, self-abnegating warrior hero to Ovid's clever verses about love and seduction. And then another work, The Metamorphoses, that's where Ovid is at his most important and influential. It's an epic of a different kind. It's more like a history of the world that is told through fantastical myths. Everything changes in Ovid's Metamorphoses. Inanimate matter changes into humans. Humans change into animals. 
or flowers or trees. Emperors change into divine objects. Julius Caesar changes into a star in the heavens. The verse is beautiful, or so I'm told, by those who know Latin. Here's my problem. Once you set no rules for things, once anything can change into anything else, then the creativity level better be very high. Must be something I couldn't think of myself. And the storytelling is exploded. You have shifting points of view, stories within stories. It's all part of the metamorphoses. There's humor and gender fluidity and myth and narrative. I like the idea of Ovid better than the actual works, at least for the metamorphoses. And the art of love, well, let me read a section and you be the judge. Tell me if this has wisdom for you. This is from book two. How to keep a lover. Short partings do best. Time wears out affections. The absent love fades. A new one takes its place. With men a louse away. Helen's disinclination for sleeping alone led her into her guest's warm bed at night. Were you crazy, Menelaus? Why go off leaving your wife with a stranger in the house? Do you trust doves to falcons? Sheep to mountain wolves? Here, Helen's not at fault. The adulterer is blameless. He did no more than you or any man else would do yourself. By providing place and occasion, you precipitated the act. What else did she do but act on your clear advice? Husband gone, this stylish stranger here on the spot, too scared to sleep alone. Oh, Helen wins my acquittal. The blame's her husband's. All she did was take advantage of a man's human complacence, and yet, more savage than the tawny boar in his rage as he tosses the maddened dogs on lightning tusks, or a lioness suckling her unweaned cubs, or the tiny adder crushed by some careless foot, is a woman's wrath. When some rival is caught in the bed, she shares. Her feelings show on her face, decorums flung to the wind, a frenzy grips her. She rushes headlong off after fire and steel. Hmm. Quite dated, I think. Essentially, all those lines are saying, don't leave home. If you do, your spouse will cheat and it'll be your fault. Interesting. An interesting take on things. Probably does say something about Rome. I don't know if it's worth banishment, but that's the thing about emperors. They sometimes exercise their authority in ways that seem extreme. Now, that's the thing about these writers. They're great important historically. What's interesting is not so much the verse itself. What it says for us is what it says about Roman society. That said, 
we're reading these for history, that's one thing. And they are important historically. I like thinking about their role in the history of Rome and the history of literature and the history of Western civilization. There's a touch of the spirit of Rome in what we've read so far, the discipline, the containment, the Roman sense of duty, as we saw in Virgil, made them great at the empire business. <laughs> but it leaves me a little cold. I'll take Greece over Rome most of the time, Athens over Sparta, messiness over control. I may be projecting this. You may find the control liberating there's something about the order, the discipline that's compelling. It's Rome. Have you ever been there? It's such an awesome city. I could never give it up. I'll be reading these guys forever, I suppose. My imagination pulls me back. That said, I tend to read other things first. Although I should mention that my next poet, Horace, who wrote some excellent poetry, is someone I want to read more of. I was doing the research for this, I was getting pulled in. Found it more relevant for us today. Odes to friendship, love, philosophy, and poetry. He was a very early literary critic, literary theorist. Talks about that in The Art of Poetry, what we call the book that he left behind. Retains some of its instructive power today. He developed a gently ironic tone. He comes across as a sensible man. Augustus liked him, but he wasn't quite the propagandist Virgil was. Sometimes things tilt into that. There's a poem called Praising Augustus. Strikes me as a little sycophantic. Maybe I would praise Augustus too had I lived in the Augustan age. Horace is interesting. His father was a freed slave. It's a long way. It's a, it's a pretty fast path to the top for Horace to go from being the child of a slave, of a former slave, to revered poet favored by the emperor. His most famous poem originated the phrase carpe diem, or seize the day. Let's take a listen to that poem. Don't ask. We never know what fate the gods grant us, whether your fate or mine. Don't waste your time on Babylonian feudal calculations. How much better to suffer what happens, whether Jupiter gives us more winters or this is the last one. One debilitating the Tyrrhenian sea on opposing cliffs. Be wise and mix the wine since time is short. Limit that far-reaching hope. The envious moment is flying now, now, while we're speaking. Seize the day. Place in the hours to come as little faith as you can. Poems about the passing of time are not exactly novel. They're not exactly unique. On the other hand, you could read that today. 
a few historical references to get through, but otherwise, the sentiment there is worthy. The next writer I want to discuss is Petronius. Petronius was famous. He wrote the Satyricon in prose. He was a friend of Nero's. By now, the Republic was long gone. Other emperors pretended, but not Nero. He was the one I mentioned before, the one who reveled in the empire, in his role as emperor, in the power and the glory of being untouchable, all-powerful, corrupt. Why not? Why pretend that it was anything different than what it was? And maybe by emphasizing it, by showing it for what it really was, it would accentuate your power to be so remote and removed, to be so unique, to be doing things no one could dream of. Maybe. Maybe that's how it works. Probably not. Probably... When you get an arrow, it means the end is near. You can impress people with your flashiness and your expensive, wasting ways. But the people don't respect you for long. They chatter, they gossip. And when times turn tough, they loathe. They riot. They assassinate. Here's Petronius writing about the debauchery, not just of the emperor, but of the whole culture. Because along with the rise of the emperor class comes a rise of a, of a new set of millionaires. Wealthy businessmen Gone is the stoic hero of Aeneas, been replaced now by the nouveau riche, the soft underbelly, the crass millionaire. And Petronius comes to satirize all of it. It's kind of like the bonfire of the vanities or some other satire. It's loving in its depiction of the details and ruthless in its agenda, takes no prisoners. Now, to really enjoy this, you kind of need to be a time traveler and someone who cares so much about the society that you are following the ins and outs of the gossip and the the different targets of Petronius's satire. You need to care about what's being satirized to really enjoy a satire. However, we can pull out some some individual sentences and quotes to get a sense of Petronius, how funny he was. One point, the character said, the most famous passage is a, uh, a dinner where a student of literature eats dinner with a wealthy businessman and the narrator just destroys 
the entire class of these people eating at this dinner. There's a quote here where the character says, Can't you see that I'm only advising you to beg yourself not to be so dumb? <laughs> That's not bad. It's another point where a character says, I said everything that a painful swelling in one's libido tells one to say. Kind of sharp. Here's the one I like. All those who are left legacies in my will will obtain my bequests only on one condition, that they cut my body in pieces and eat it before the eyes of the citizens. You must merely shield your eyes and imagine that what you have swallowed is not human entrails, but ten million sesterces. That's not bad. It's lively. I hope you're getting a flavor of the range of poets that we have from this period. There's a little more life to them than you might think. And then, probably the most lively at all, man, Catullus. I've saved him for last, although he actually comes first in chronological order of the five that I've given you today. Catullus is kind of unbelievable. You hear that Catullus was explicit and bawdy, obscene, profane, and then you hear that translators cleaned it up, left lines in Latin, and you think, those Victorians, always doing it, always thinking their readers can't handle it. With Catullus, you read the, the literal translation, you think, wow, maybe they should have left that in Latin. <laughs> Maybe my ears are a little too tender for this. Catullus is out there. He really is. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read the worst of it. They're fun to read, although they're a little cranky. They're a little cranky, and sometimes you see the mind, you think, this guy's going overboard. And they're just daily life. That's them at their thinnest. Imagine if I wrote a poem and I said, this jerk cut me off on the beltway, you, and then just launch into this invective kind of thing people say in their car when no one else is riding along with them. That's the poem. <laughs> it's angry and snarling. He's like a, a blogger in full rant. If Virgil is like a, a documentary favorable to the administration, maybe produced by someone within the government. And if Horace is like an arts program, thinking about friendship, philosophy. Catullus is just the angry dude on Twitter who hates his ex-wife. <laughs> Now, if it was pure misogyny, a lot of his poems are about uh, a woman. We think we know who she really is. Catullus calls her lesbia, which the part I like about that is that apparently is a tribute to Sappho. Man, 
that episode on Sappho. I'm still thinking about it. Got to read more Sappho. Sappho, the celebrity poet. She would go off to other villages, other islands, and they would build statues of her to celebrate her arrival. Like the Adele of her day. So he calls this woman Lesbia. Has 25 poems addressed to her. And he's so angry. She ditched him. And he hates her. <laughs> well, he doesn't just hate her. He also praises her. How beautiful she was. How much... How much he misses her, like how well he did when he was in love with her, when he was her lover. He has one poem. This is the whole poem. I hate and I love. Why do I, you ask? I don't know. But it's happening and it hurts. <laughs> That's Catullus. It's so good. Poor Catullus. Here's one that's kind of nice. We should live, my lesbia, and love and value all the talk of stricter old men at a single penny. Suns can set and rise again for us once our brief light has set. There's one unending night for sleeping. Give me a thousand kisses, then a hundred, then another thousand, then a second hundred, then still another thousand, then a hundred. Then... When we've made many thousands, we'll muddle them so as not to know, or lest some villain overlook us, knowing the total of our kisses. Developing a theory. Such an interesting way to put this. A thousand kisses, then a hundred, then another thousand, then a second hundred. Is that because of Roman numerals? Is that the way his mind works? Is that just because the poetry scanned better that way or because the Roman numerals made his mind work that way? You put in a thousand, MC, 1,000, then 100? I don't know. Here's one. This. <laughs> I'm going to read a couple more from Catullus. says, Lesbia hurls abuse at me in front of her husband. That fatuous person finds it highly amusing. Nothing gets through to you, jackass, for silence would signal that she'd been cured of me. But her barking and bitching shows that not only have I not been forgotten, but that this burns her, and so she rants and rages. Catullus is... He struggles. Oh, I love poets when their personality just comes through. Catullus was famous in his day. He'd see someone on the street and he'd dash off this poem about how much he hates the person. <laughs> or how much he hates a corrupt politician or a bad poet. It's fierce. Here's one, too. Here's one where he's imploring himself. Probably an underused poetic device to be 
imploring yourself to do something. He says, Wretched Catullus, you have to stop this nonsense. Admit that what you see has ended is over. Once there were days which shone for you with rare brightness, when you would follow wherever your lady led you, the one we once loved as we will love no other. There was no end in those days to our pleasures, when that you wished for was what she also wanted. Yes, there were days which shone for you with rare brightness. Now, she no longer wishes. You mustn't want it. You've got to stop chasing her now. Cut your losses, harden your heart, and hold out firmly against her. Goodbye now, lady. Catullus's heart is hardened. He will not look to you nor call against your wishes. How you'll regret it when nobody comes calling. So much for you, bitch. Your life is all behind you. Now who will come to see you, thinking you lovely? Whom will you love now, and whom will you belong to? Whom will you kiss, and whose lips will you nibble? But you, Catullus, you must hold out now, firmly. <laughs> we should have Gollum read this. <laughs> oh, Catullus. Here's one where... I'll end with this one. He's, Catullus is talking about the writing of poetry. He says, Just yesterday, Licinius, at leisure, we played around for hours with my tablets, writing erotic verse as we'd agreed to, each of us taking turns at improvising line after line, in meter after meter, adjuncts to wine and witty conversation. And when I left you, I was so on fire with all your brilliant and ironic humor that after dinner I was still excited, and sleep refused to touch my eyes with quiet. In bed and totally unstrung by passion, tossing in agony, I prayed for sunrise when I could be with you in conversation. But when my limbs, exhausted by their labor, lay on the bed in nearly fatal stillness, I made this poem for you, my beloved, so you could take the measure of my sorrow. I beg you to be kind to my petition, darling, for if you aren't, if you're cruel, then Nemesis will turn on you in outrage. Don't rile her up, please. She's a bitch, that goddess. Ah, Catullus. Is it offense for Catullus and his misogyny? Is it offense that he hates everyone equally? Maybe. Maybe. I've heard Martin Amos invoke that in, in his own defense. People say, your women are such awful characters, and they'll say, the men are swine too. Maybe that's how we need to read Catullus. That he was just a personality doing his best writing in his crusty, curmudgeonly way. In small doses, I can take Catullus. I enjoy Catullus, but only in small doses.
there's our music. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jack Wilson. You can contact me at jackwilson.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. Or send me an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. We'll be back next time with another draft. This time we're going to look at great literary duos. That'll be with our special guest, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. I hope you enjoy what you have in store for you this week. Maybe it's spring break for you. If so, I hope you're going somewhere warm. I actually am not. Going somewhere rainy and cold. It's kind of what I do. Other people honeymoon in Hawaii. I took my honeymoon in Alaska. Who knows? It's my northern roots, I suppose. That'll be a topic for another day. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of the History of Literature. And we will see you next time.